Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus. One more time, chapter 26. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. If you're new to heritage, maybe new to the Bible, that's a strange-sounding title for a book, but we've been in it for the last several months, and today we come to our last sermon in this book. Over the next three weeks, we'll have a short series titled Mile Markers for the Mission. Mark Vowles will preach for us next week on proclamation. I'll preach the week after that on disciple-making and church planting. And then Jonathan Farmer will preach for us at the end of August. Uh, The gentleman that you'll hear from in our family meeting, if you're new here, and stay with us. Jonathan Farmer will preach on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mile Markers for the Mission. Hope that you can join us for these next three weeks. And after that, well, I'll tell you what's coming, maybe a little later in the service. Kids' stories have ended for a number of years with, and they lived happily ever after. That phrase goes back to 17th century, and apparently by the 18th century, it was mocked as baloney. Um, Of course, Nothing ends happily ever after. You can put that at the end of a fairy tale for a child, and they can imagine life may be that way, but life is not that way. Well, does the Bible and the Bible story end happily ever after? Let us get into that question this morning, and we'll do so by reading from the first first 20 verses of the book of Leviticus. Uh, Listen as I read. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase." And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and you will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all of my commandments, but break my covenant. Then I, will do to you, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, and your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. We'll stop there, although the sermon will be from the whole of the chapter. Well, this chapter, 26, is not the last chapter in the book of Leviticus. If you were to read chapter 27, which would be profitable and fruitful, 
it is like an expansion, a more detailed expansion on some of the laws concerning neighbor love and justice that we have explored in previous chapters, even last week, in two weeks ago in chapter 25. So we're not going to preach through that chapter. Scholars have some difficulty knowing why it's there at the very end, and you can spin some answers, but any way you put it, we wouldn't have put it there. Maybe the best explanation is you don't want to end the book on cursings. So let's circle back around to these detailed instructions. Or maybe another explanation is it's a whole lot of detail on subject matter that we got some detail on earlier, so it could be like an appendix. You could see it that way. Another way to see this is that chapters 25 and 27, which are related to each other, hold, like book covers, chapter 26, which is the last high point in the book. Remember how this book is built over these triangles of chapters. There's a movement from one side to the other, and yet the way that the author has structured this is beautiful, so that you hear themes, and then you have material, and then themes are echoed. And so 27 and 25 hold out 26, which we'll take to be the conclusion for our, for our series. This chapter itself has its own bookends within the chapter. So at the beginning of the chapter here, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect a, an image or pillar, and you shall not set a figured stone in the land about down to it. I am the Lord your God. And at the chapter ends, you see that this is the rules and laws the, and statutes the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. These are reminders that this whole book and this chapter come to us in the context of a covenant relationship that the Lord established with his people Israel. It is not the same covenant that we are under, although it is not and is hardly irrelevant for us, which we'll explore. But it's helpful to remember that this chapter comes to us in the context of a covenant relationship, and the, the little cue we get at the beginning and at the end is to remind us of that. We're at Mount Sinai with Israel being given the law. And even here in verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I'm the Lord. Well, we've explored these. The sanctuary, that dwelling place of God, which is the meeting place between God and man. This is the place at which humankind is to engage the living God. And then you shall keep my Sabbaths. If the sanctuary has to do with place or space, then the Sabbaths concern the rhythm of time, those special times and occasions in which God's people engaged with the living God. So from space and time, the Lord is owner of it all, and he has designed space with this tabernacle at the center of it, and he's designed time with this rhythm of Sabbaths so that we would have a regular place and a regular time of remembering that God is the Lord and our life comes from him. And that's what he was teaching them through these very words here and reminding them of all that he had instructed in the book of Leviticus to this point. Well, two questions as we head into our sermon this morning to expound the whole of the chapter. Um, what, did, what was Israel to expect of her covenant Lord? In the context of this covenant, what was she to expect of the Lord? And then the second question will be, well, what does all that mean for us. So first, what was Israel to expect of her covenant Lord? What we have in Leviticus chapter 26 is nothing less than an outline of what Israel was to expect from her covenant Lord. The chapter breaks down straightforwardly into two parts. We have verses 8 through, excuse me, 3 through 13 which are blessings for obedience or covenant loyalty. And then verses 14 through the end of the chapter are cursings for disobedience or covenant betrayal, betrayal of the Lord. And to begin here, we'll walk through the chapter and I'll explain what's there on the page and we'll draw out some insights into the nature of covenants and all of that. So, as we have typically done, let's settle in for some time in a very ancient ancient text. 
So verses 3 through 13 are blessings for, for covenant loyalty. There's a progression uh, in these blessings from the material in the first handful of verses to the, the spiritual. Now in these material blessings, we'll see that there's the blessing of land and, and children and security. And the prosperity gospel preachers in theology has made a good mess of much of the Bible at the abuse of passages like these. Remember, this is a covenant that God had with a people. It wasn't a, you know, a roadmap for success for individuals in their relationship with God individually. This is a covenant with Israel that was confined to the time in which they were under that covenant. And he had particular purposes in blessing them with land and children and security for their obedience at that time. Obedience is still not just warranted, but wanted by the Lord and enabled by the Lord, and the blessing is greater. But the focus on, to focus entirely on material blessings would be a great mistake and do damage to the Bible's teaching. It would be equally wrong to say that God isn't concerned with our material situation. That's not the case either. And this passage would say as much. It was good that they had land and children and security. And Jesus even tells us to pray for our daily bread. And so that's what we do. We see in verses 4 through 5, you have, I will give you, if they're obedient to his commandments, I'll give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. The threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest. So basically, you've got food all the time, and good food all the time, and it's, the land is working for you, and it never gives up, and it's just as you'd want it. And in verses 6, we see there's peace. You'll dwell in your land security. I'll give peace to the land, and you shall lie down. And no one shall make you afraid. Or remove all the harmful beasts from the land. And no sword shall go through your land. In fact, if there are enemies of yours intruding to do you harm, you'll scare them and chase them off and defeat them. You will be secure. I assure you of this, Israel, the Lord says. If you obey me, if you seek me, if you're with me, you will be okay. You will be provided for, and you will have security. In verse 9, I'll turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. Fruitful and multiply that command given to Adam and Eve in the garden God's purpose for humanity to multiply and fill the earth little glory reflectors everywhere humans go is a reflection of the glory of God and he means to fill the earth with his image bearers and then his promise to Abraham that that he would be fruitful and multiply and his descendants would be like the stars of the sky the sand and the the shore so this is God's promise this all is his intention and the blessing of children and multiplication. Well, they certainly multiplied when they were in Egypt, and that was encouraging, except they were in, in bondage. Well, now they're out of bondage, and they're in covenant with their Lord, who's way better than Pharaoh, and he promises to multiply them even further. They've gone from a family to a nation, and he intends for them to grow. For God's promise to Abraham is that his children would be a blessing to the whole earth, that all the families of the earth would be would be blessed. God's purposes for his people are global. And so he'll make them fruitful and multiply. He'll keep up what he has started. But of course it doesn't start, stop with the material, but moves to the spiritual, because that's where all of this is going anyways. He's blessing them in those ways so that they would taste something of his goodness and know something of his nearness and his faithfulness I will make, verse 11, my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And this here is the heartbeat of the living God. It's the heartbeat of the God who called us together this morning. It's the heartbeat of the God that, that gave us the scriptures. It's the heartbeat of the God that is assigned for preachers to preach the word he intends to dwell among his people. He intends to walk among us. 
And doesn't that sound like Eden? God with his people, nothing between us, no shame, no guilt, no sin, a closeness. And isn't this so different than as the book opened up with Moses not able to get into the tent, all of the story of Scripture leading to this point, at that point, where the tent of meeting would be a place where God meets with man, but man can't get in, not even the best of them, God's choice servant, Moses. But he has appeared through the tent with fire, and he has been pleased with the sacrifices, and he has forgiven their sins, albeit not entirely perfectly forever, but he's, he's been willing to forgive on account of sacrifices, and he takes pleasure in his people, and he gives them the day of atonement, so they would know their sins are taken as far away as they can be taken, as good as gone. And here he says, I will make my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is the goal toward which all of history and all of the Bible is moving, and it is the goal toward which you, friend, were created to pursue. And it's because of sin that we miss a lock on all kinds of other mere flares. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is how you know I will keep my word. Remember how I brought you out. Remember the plagues. Remember the waters of the Red Sea. Remember the food from heaven. Remember the unleavened bread. I've brought you to the mountain. I am your God. I will do it. That you should not be their slaves, but my servant. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and I have made you walk erect. I have made you to stand tall. I have made you to stand proud. And whatever your circumstances... You may like your job, you may not. You may like your paycheck, you may not. You may not have a paycheck. You may be going through the worst of times with family relationships. If you're in Christ, you know the grace of God and His purpose for you is that you would stand tall. You are not the slave of your former slave master, Satan. You are God's servant. And He is a great master and it is a great privilege to serve Him. And it's this standing tall and this proper pride in what God has done that allows us to obey and get through things and to walk in a fallen world that still gives us lots of trouble. Remembering God's purpose to walk among us and dwell among us and remembering what He's done for us in Jesus on the cross. He's brought us out of more than Egypt, and His miracles on your behalf are greater than those He performed for Israel. Well, before we move on to our second part of the sermon, and I had a little note, move briskly through the first part so the second part doesn't sound too heavy. We want to go up, to, we want to go up a hill and then down a hill like this. I don't want to do this and then drop you off a cliff. The second part is important. I want to talk about covenant for a few minutes. There are blessings and cursings here. And these are not magical things, as in impersonal. Like there's obedience to God and then there's some, something wired into the, into the ether which spits out rain or land. It's, it's not impersonal. Neither is this merely natural consequences of obedience. We might be troubled with how to read some of this because it's confusing, and so we just make a quick and cheap move to it's good to obey God because there are natural consequences for obedience, and, and that is true enough. But this is different than that. This is very personal and specific, what God is promising it's not a general framework or a proverbial promise that as you obey, things generally go well. This is, this is covenantal. This is like an agreement. Things God is promising to do for his, his people. 
So let's think about covenants for a moment. Because covenants were familiar to the original readers in the ancient Near East. They had a particular shape and, and particular features. Blessings and cursings just like this were typically at the end of a covenant outline. And the cursings were typically longer. More specifics were needed for those. It doesn't mean to represent that the, uh, the sovereign who's ordering this is really excited about the curses and just keeps going on and on. Love those curses. No, no, no. It's, it's just needed for practical purposes. The heartbeat of the passage is that, that God wants to dwell among us, and that is his intention. Covenants have several features, uh, almost all of them. Uh, they're unilateral. In this case, the sovereign uh, in in the scriptures, the sovereign who is the Lord uh, orders the covenant. We don't sit down at a table and hash it out. Uh, my covenant, he says in verse 9, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. Uh, it speaks of covenant eight times in this chapter, six times my covenant. It's his. They're unilateral, and then God orders them and designs them, and yet they are relational. My people, he calls us. I will dwell among you, and I will be your God. So we're familiar with contractual arrangements where there's some give and take and responsibilities, and a contract may be canceled. The goal of the contract is is something that, that each party provides to the other. It's an economic arrangement, typically. This is really more like, a lot like, a marriage covenant, where the goal is not economic. The goal is relational. And there are promises and there are commitments involved. But the goal is not what I can get out of you and take away with me, but the goal is us together. So they're unilateral, they're relational, they're, we could say, mediatorial, they're mediated. Moses here is the one to whom God is speaking. These are the statutes, rules, and laws made between the Lord and his people of Israel. It's with Israel the covenant is made. But this covenant is made with Israel, all the people, through Moses. Through Moses. And the covenants of the Bible have mediators, representatives that represent the people. They're conditional. There are ifs and there are thens. If you walk in my statutes, then I will give you your reins and season. If you will not listen and if you abhor me and walk contrary to me, then I will. And we'll get to some of those cursings. Blessings and cursings. Israel lived under the grace of God. Remember, he's speaking to a people who have been redeemed by blood. He's speaking to a people he has brought out of slavery by his grace. He is speaking to a people to whom he has given this whole book and these instructions that he might appear with them and dwell with them and meet with them at the tent. The goal of all this being even greater intimacy that he would walk among them. All that is, all that is theirs. And yet there are conditions here. If you walk in my statutes, I will. Right? It's an open offer. Open offer. But obedience is required for the maintenance of this covenant. And each of the covenants in Scripture have uh, conditions. And we'll get to how that works in the new covenant that we're under later. That in the garden, God's relationship with Adam, there's a good argument to be made. It's covenantal, even though the word is not used. Uh, Adam is made by God's grace from nothing. He's given the world and bounty to enjoy He's given a stipulation, and there's an if-then, and he, he does the if, he takes the tree, and he plunges humanity into death and under the curse. Abraham was promised that all the nations would be blessed through his seed, and he would be given land, and yet he was to 
obey in faith. Um, Different covenants will press on and emphasize and hold out conditions in different ways. The Sinaitic covenant, the one made at Sinai with Israel, lays heavy into these conditions in very detailed, detailed ways. But it does teach us that the God who saves is a God who intends to dwell with a people and walk with a people who will walk with him, who are willing to walk with him. And he will not dwell with and walk among those who do not want to and who betray him. Mediatorial, conditional. They're built on mutual promises. We see promises from the Lord here from beginning to end. I will, I will, I will. And some of those promises are happy promises and some of those are are negative. And then they're visual. They come with visual aids. Covenants typically have covenant signs. So the covenant, we could say, with all of creation through Adam and then Noah after him, God's words for his purpose for Adam and command to Adam and his commands to Noah are very similar, if not identical, in their themes. And that covenant with Noah was with all the creation through Noah. The rainbow in the sky after the judgment. That's God's sign that he's hanging up his war bow. And every time we see it, we know that he'll never judge the earth in that way again. And so seed time and harvest, wheat and chaff will grow next to each other. Believers and unbelievers uh, until Jesus comes. You have God's promise to Abraham and Abraham's sons, Abraham's seed, his children, and the covenant sign of circumcision, which was a cutting of the flesh to symbolize the cutting of the heart that was ultimately needed. You have God's covenant here at Sinai, and this covenant with the Exodus as that event around it had the sign of the Passover. As God's people were redeemed out of Israel, the blood of the, the doorposts would be marked with blood, and that would be a sign as the angel of death then passed over the homes who had entrusted themselves to the living God by marking their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. And they would repeat this symbolically and ritually every year, the Feast of Passover, and that was a sign. And you can tell the whole story of the Bible by, by walking through these signs. How kind is God? He gave us a long book, but he gave us some very simple signs through which to unfold the story of the Bible. And as you meditate on these signs in the context of each story in which they come, you get a little more clear just as God intended for you to through the sign as to what God was doing and what he is doing. There's a promise to to David, and David recognizes that all that God had ever promised and intended and and was leading us to would, would route through him for humanity. And there's a promise of a new covenant. And when Jesus comes and brings the new covenant, he gives new signs, a sign of entry into that covenant. The sign doesn't get you in, but it's a sign that you're in. It's given by the church and that you take on the sign of baptism, Signaling union with death, union in Jesus and his death, with Jesus and his death, and resurrection to new life with him. Then there's the sign of the Lord's table, which is a sign of Jesus' death, and through a different image, image of blood in the cup. And then also new life as we drink to the joy of the coming kingdom, which he brings. Now, the whole story of the Bible in the signs. A little bit on covenants then. Well, there's an important passage that we'll we'll touch on before we we get to to the second part of this first chapter. And you don't need to turn there, but I'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you have what begins several chapters of blessings and of cursings. Blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. Several chapters give us the context of this. And in chapter 30, there's a 
an important passage that near predicts, you think Moses was having a bad day, uh, predicts that the people will not be blessed under this covenant, but will be cursed and exiled. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God. Whoa. When you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord has driven you, as we'll see in a moment, that's near the end of the line. See, Moses here, at the end of Deuteronomy, later than Leviticus was written, is pessimistic about where things are going with Israel. Let's come back to chapter 26 of Leviticus as we get now into the second half of the chapter. So we had covenant blessings for for loyalty, obedience. And now we have covenant cursings for betrayal. At verse 14, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, But you break my covenant. Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, wasting disease. And your heart will ache. You'll sow the ground in vain. And I'll set set my face against you. If then. A movement from God's favor to His face set against us. A movement from security to a fearful expectation of capture and death. And already you can sense in this first little paragraph of cursings that that they are not unrelated to the blessings. In fact, many of the cursings are a mirror, an echo in opposite form, or a, a, a negative version of the positive blessings that God had promised. certainly makes them easier to remember. And you don't want to miss them. These are intended to deter from disobedience, but also attract and draw people into fellowship with God. Verse 18, And if in spite of this, these cursings, the Lord promised very specifically, I will do these things if you you don't keep covenant. And so when these specific things happen, you'd think you'd wake up and, okay, okay, no. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins and I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain and your land will dry up. The word discipline here is the right word. Punishment is not quite right. It's true that these are retributive. They are just from God. They're just. But it is also true that God's purpose in these just punishments is restorative. He intends for them to turn. And so discipline is a good word here. And we see the heart of the matter. His purpose in the discipline is is calculated to break your pride, to break the pride of his people. As is the case of all of the Father's discipline of His children to this day, it is to break our pride to make us know our dependence. So He dries up the ground so they would know that it's from the Lord that the rain comes and cry out to Him so that they would live in the constant knowledge of God's gracious provision for them. This matter of sevenfold means seven times. It sounds shocking, but... It also tells us that his discipline is perfect. It is perfectly appropriate to the betrayal. That number seven. Verse 21, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, we're working now in the third of what are seven steps on this side of the chapter. I will continue striking you, sevenfold for your sins. I'll let wild beasts loose against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock. So this is, this is grievous. You have wild beasts let loose to ravage the land and ravage the people and to take and to kill their children. 
This was preventable through obedience to the covenant. This apparently is the next step in what is required to break the pride of His people to see their roads deserted so that they might call out to Him. Verse 23, if by this discipline you're not turned, but to me you walk contrary, then I will walk contrary to you. And that's a bad day. I will strike you sevenfold and I will bring a sword upon you and shall execute vengeance for the covenant. So you notice that, that God is actually being faithful to His word. His name and His word in in these covenant curses. He's keeping His promises. Verse 26, And when I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven. Wish you had a little bit bigger kitchen. It's always nice to have two ovens, right? Well, this is, this is one oven for ten families, ten homes. So they're going to work the one oven. But even that oven's not going to produce satisfactory food. The sword will come upon you. Whereas you had peace and the sword defended you, now the sword will, will come upon you. Whereas you had abundant food to satisfaction, now you have a real small kitchen that doesn't really, really work. And he says, I myself will do this, which God's doing it. He may do it through foreign lands for Israel, but it is God who is acting in history through these very harsh punishments to bring about the obedience of his people. And his harsh punishments reflect the the grievous and gross nature of their sin. So if you want to know what sin looks like, look at the response of the Lord to sin. Uh, Verse 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I walk contrary to you. He adds, in fury I'll discipline you. Verse 29, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. Did he really say that? So at first, you don't have peace in your land, but you live in a terrible fear of attack. And then your children are attacked and taken and killed by animals. And then you're attacked by the sword. Now, now maybe you're allowed to live, but you're so desperate and so desolate. And the famine is so great that you're eating your kids. This ought to deter. And why such a harsh punishment? Because he doesn't want this. I'll destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. These are worship places made by Israel in order to seek the favor of another God because they trust in another God, the God of the nations around them. They won't trust in their God, but they will trust in a different God. And we have a a memorable Use of imagery here. A punishment that fits a crime. He will cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. Which is not to say that he's going to put the idols down. It's to say that the idols are dead. And as a living God, I will put your dead body over the dead body of your idol. If you will worship a false god then I will take the life that I gave to you from you and you can have what you have asked for. I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and unsheath the sword after you. This is exile. Adam and humanity was banished from the garden. And here we have a banishment from the land. If she will not live with the Lord and before the Lord and unto the Lord, then she cannot have him or the land she gave to her for that purpose. I was in Portland this last week. Um, On that hiking trip I mentioned with my son, we flew into Portland, visited with some friends at a church there, 
hiked up in Washington. But we were in and out of a Walmart uh, to get some things that we couldn't get before we uh, got on a plane. And the strangest things were behind glass in this Walmart in this city. Uh, basic camping things. And I asked the attendant, why is all this behind glass? Like the camping section was all behind glass. And she turned around and looked at me. She said, do you know where you're at? I'm like, no. And then she said where I was at, which I wasn't familiar with. I literally just followed the map to Walmart on my way to where I was going. Granted, it may have been the rougher part of town, but I did start to notice that the homeless roamed the, the aisles and grabbed at things. I watched it happen. Uh, the reason why the camping section was behind glass is because that's, that's prime material for the homeless in that community. And the homeless themselves, at least outside of that Walmart, were zombies would be the only, uh, only word for it. The walking dead. Uh, what were clearly women engaged in prostitution and, and others who lived there out in front of this Walmart. Faces which bore all the marks uh, of the effects of hard drugs on the body. And you could hardly look in anyone's eyes. They were glazed over as if to stare through you and by you there was nothing left. Friends, if we could only see ourselves from the vantage point of all that you were meant to be, and I can, see, I can see what with my own eyes what hard drugs had done and what sin in many cases had done, theirs and others, to these precious humans. And yet if we could only see all that God had meant for us, we would be appalled at our station and our decisions and our choices and our our desires in sin. But for the grace of God, we're alive to live another day. Verse 36. As for those who are left, those who are still alive, my people scattered among the nations, as for those who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. Even the sound of a leaf will make them twitch. They'll, they'll know they're, they're gotten. Judgment chases them. And they shall stumble over one another as if to escape the sword. That's very different than walking erect as he described at the end of the blessings. I have saved you to walk with your head high, confident, satisfied, taken care of, not afraid. And here you'll be afraid at a, at a driven leaf. A pretty sad picture. But it's at that point that verse 40 stands out. We have our seventh turn in this half of the chapter. But, but, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. And he goes on and he goes on. For I am the Lord their God. Verse 45, but I will... For their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. There it is again. In the sight of the nations, everyone saw it, that I might be their God. That is my intention. I am the Lord. How gracious is God? How gracious is He? After all of this, and how we've spited Him and rebelled against Him, He nevertheless holds out reconciliation as an open invitation to Israel in the context of this covenant, what must they do? It's not even opening us up to chapters and chapters of new rituals and things to do. It's simply confessing their iniquity and humbling themselves in their hearts to make amends for their iniquity. 
which is what the whole point of Leviticus was moving toward anyways. It wasn't that God needed someone to work his house. I got this lever here and this curtain here and this thing here and it'd be sure nice to have a nice smell over there and I'm going to put the people. It's not it. This was for us all along. And it was for us right here all along. The grace of God to humble us who seeks loyalty to himself in the heart. And how can we be sure that he really would take us if we turn to him and confess our sins? Oh, but that he delivered Israel from Egypt. And oh, Christian, that he's delivered you from bondage to sin. So you can turn to him today, whatever it is. But it does take humbling yourself. So it's not okay, it doesn't work to be a Christian and keep all your sin and go to church and say the things with us and keep all your sin. It takes humbling yourself. It takes a straightforward acknowledgement and ownership of the sins that you have committed against your living God, the living God and open arms to receive his forgiveness. And this right here requires a miracle, frankly, greater than the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Because ultimately, as we'll see, there's something that God is after here that his miracles in delivering them from Egypt didn't bring about. His miracles in delivering his people from Egypt, which he keeps bringing up, didn't make their hearts the kind of hearts that would keep his commandments. Which is why I'll bring you back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. You remember I read a bit, a bit from that earlier. Moses, pessimistic about where all this is going, says, when he gathers you back from the nations where he scattered you, remember I said it's the end of the line, that portends a bad future. That means their children have been killed and they have been killed, many of them, and they've been booted from the land. In verse 6, and the Lord your God, what will he do? This is all the way back in Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may, that you may live, right? So this tabernacle and this sacrificial system was grace from God to his people and to us to teach us about what he's after and about how to get to him and how to meet with him and how he might dwell with us. But it's more like the instruction manual for setting up, for building a car than it is the car itself. It actually doesn't work. It, it works in part. There was real meeting and real forgiveness but the better image illustration is that of a shadow to substance. It was real. A shadow is real, right? But it's not the substance. It's not the thing. And neither is this the thing. And praise the Lord for that. And so we move from what Israel was to expect from her covenant Lord, now in the second part, to us. What the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in the new covenant. And as this chapter was an outline of what Israel was to expect from her Lord, so this chapter is also an outline of how our Lord suffered for us and the blessings he brings to us. Oh, we know that a, a physical animal lamb isn't the answer to our sins and yet we understand that a physical animal lamb in Leviticus helps us understand Jesus on the cross. So too, the blessings and the cursings in the old covenant are mere shadows of what is to come both in judgment and in life and blessing in the new covenant. Jesus, friends, when he came, he came preaching blessing and he came preaching cursing. When 
as a new Moses on the mount, giving the new law, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began by speaking words of blessing and a promise of blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth more than the land. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, blessed, blessed. When Jesus on green grass fed the 5,000 and said, I am the bread of life, He was offering Himself up as the abundance and the feast that is to be ours in salvation. Very much greater than the mere manna that fell from heaven. And very much greater than the abundance of food from the physical ground that Israel was promised. Jesus is all of that for our souls. And when Jesus laid down on the boat, unafraid, as everyone else was afraid, and he wakes up and says, Peace, be still. And later gives his peace to his disciples. He's saying, I'm the one who brings peace. There is no peace in this, in this life apart from me. I am peace. And he preached cursings. He preached cursings on the Pharisees, for after the blessings and the Sermon on the Mount, there came the woes. And I won't read them for you, but you can on your own. They're as bad as the cursings here or worse. Jesus came preaching blessings and cursings. And thank God, Jesus took our curse in order to give us His blessing. When Jesus died, He suffered under the curse of sudden terror and darkness. He even asked God to take the cup from Him and He Sweat, blood drops. He suffered on the curse of dried up strength at the end of himself as angels were sent to minister to him in the wilderness, symbolic of the exile as he was replaying in his life Israel's own life. It is not likely the case that anyone at the time would have known that what Jesus is doing is a recapitulation of the whole history of their story. And yet the gospel authors seem to put these things in just an order. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. And Jesus goes into the wilderness. And Jesus comes to the mountain and teaches in a new law. And Jesus is surrounded by enemies on the cross who would rule over Him, who hate Him. And Jesus saw beasts in the wilderness that would foreshadow the attack And the suffering that was to come on the cross. And Jesus would even take the sword of the vengeance of God. On the cross, he would quote from Zechariah 3, verse 17. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. You read that whole verse back in Zechariah. It is the Lord who strikes the sheep. The shepherd and the sheep are scattered. And in that same verse, it is the Lord who is drawing His sword to strike the shepherd. The Lord will draw His sword to strike the shepherd with the curse that the people deserve and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus is saying that the curses of Leviticus chapter 26 and the Old Covenant are falling on me now and that's where they go for anybody who will find their way to God safely and for peace. And in Jesus, in the wilderness earlier in his ministry, and outside the camp where he dies, dies as one in exile, put out of the sanctuary. Yet it is through his death that the way into the sanctuary is opened. When he died, he suffered under the curse for us. And when he was raised, he was raised to new life in order that we might have abundant life in Him. You know, baptism and the Lord's Supper are both death symbols. Baptism represents the death of Jesus and our death with Him 
through union with Him and our resurrection to new life, which is yours now if you're in Christ. And the Lord's table, as we said, is a symbol of His death, His blood, the covenant in His blood. And yet we drink to the joy of the coming kingdom when He will come. So what's new about the new covenant? What's different about it? What's founded on different promises? And it comes with a better priest. One who can take the curses away and one who can give us all the blessing. And better promises. One of those promises of which is that circumcision of heart that Moses was talking about. Ezekiel will preach to the people in his day whom he calls a valley of dry bones which is pretty dead. Pretty pretty rough place to be in. They're in exile experiencing everything this chapter has promised. And where do we go from there exactly? Well, God will put flesh on the bones and raise them up and breathe his life into them. Because Jesus himself is life. And if you have faith in him, you've been grafted into the life of Jesus as a branch to a vine. And there is a promise, it even seems, in Romans chapter 11, that one day a great multitude from ethnic descendants of Abraham will come to him. And how exactly and when, we don't know, but it does appear that way. Nevertheless, that's not one people, and we're a different people, but they will be grafted into the one people, those people who are children of Abraham by faith, which is you and which is me. Well, Jesus took what we deserve, our curse, in order to give us what we do not deserve, that is his. And so, friends, here at the conclusion of the book of Leviticus, I offer to you an invitation that is the message of the book, to choose life, to choose Him. And Christian, if you have come today and you have chosen Christ, give praise to God that before you did that, He circumcised your heart in fulfillment of His promise that He will have a people for His name. He wasn't hoping He would come up with something to get some people to turn to Him. He turned you to Himself. This chapter with its cursings is an indication of where you and I go left to ourselves. Yet this chapter, with the promise that is hinted in it, but if they turn, I will remember, is an indication that he will have a people for himself. Humanity is not a failed project, and we find that out by looking at the church gathered on the Lord's day. And so in inviting you into life, into faith in the Lord Jesus who died for you and who was raised for you, I'm inviting you on this word into fullness of life, an abundant life that we read about at the very end of the Bible. Familiar words. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Finally, behold, the dwelling place of God, present tense, is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And have you been sad this week? We'll be encouraged that he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And what of all this tabernacle stuff and the temple that's promised to David one day? An even better place to meet with God. Well, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. He is everywhere and there is no barrier. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. So there's no need for the luminaries in the sky anymore. And there's no need for that lampstand to light things up in the tabernacle. For the Lord's light is shining brightly. And you're not just looking at the tail end of it. And you're not just looking at Moses' face when it's unveiled for a moment, if you caught a glimpse, dangerous as that was. No, you're looking at the Lord. And because sin is gone, and because he has circumcised your heart, and he has made you holy, perfectly holy at this time, you'll be able to look at him and know true life in him. John speaks of the healing of the nations and says, No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is gone, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, not idols they make. 
and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for being merciful to sinners. We thank you for being so merciful. Life isn't fair in so many ways, and we feel that. But if we could see what we have been given that we don't deserve, apart from salvation, and oh, to make us see today, now, Father, all that is ours that is by mercy that we don't deserve in Christ. Make us a grateful people, a thankful people, a worshiping people, a humble people, a people who are humble before you to confess their sins and receive forgiveness and to grow in more likeness of your Son, to be holy as you are holy and to pursue that with abandon because we have a vision of you and your greatness and because we have tasted your goodness and your mercy in this book. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.